This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. Explore more podcasts at www.teachbetterpodcastnetwork.com. Now let's get on to the episode. Welcome to the Counter Narrative Podcast, a show designed to change the way we talk and think about education. By sharing stories of successes and triumphs, we aim to challenge the dominant narrative that often negatively portrays our disenfranchised populations. I'm your host, Charles Williams, an urban educator for more than 15 years, a current school principal in Chicago, an educational consultant, an equity advocate, and the co-host of Inside the Principal's Office. Let's get started. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Counter Narrative Podcast. Um, you all, like, I feel really bad because every time I, I, I hop into one of these episodes, I'm like, I'm really excited for this next guest. And the truth is, I'm always excited. But this guest that is on today, we've been trying to get together for like months now. And we're like, yes, this date. No, I've got something. Wait, wait, wait. I've got something. I've got some. It, it, it's been the scheduling thing. Um, and there's no no surprise. I mean, the my my next guest is an educational consultant, uh, a speaker, a teacher, and not just any teacher. The Cook County Teacher of the Year, the Idea Illinois Teacher of the Year. I mean, doing some amazing things. And so, of course, you know, I jokingly said every time I looked up after a reschedule, I was like, "Oh, you're doing more things, more opportunities to have conversations and discussions." So today on the show, I have so San Jabber. And, and and I'm sorry if I messed that up. I tried so hard to make sure that I said it correctly. How are you today? I'm doing great. I'm so happy that we finally made this work. And thank you for for having me. I'm honored to be here, honestly. So I, I, I know I was teasing a little bit about like, you know, all of the great work that you're doing, you know, the phenomenal, you know, just I mean, every time, literally every time I'm jumping on social media, I'm like, man, she's out there doing the work. So can you tell us just a little bit about your current role, maybe the journey on how you ended up in this space, as well as all of the other wonderful things that you're doing. And then, of course, my, my favorite question is maybe something that not everyone knows about you. Let's see. So my current role, I literally just signed a contract a couple of days ago for a new role as a department chair of, the, of English um, at District 207 Main West High School. So I'm super excited because Congrats. I think that is, thank you. It's the marriage of everything I love. Um, it is a school that is detracking curriculum, um, detracking grade levels, and they are making sure that their curriculum is really social justice and equity oriented. So it helps me marry my love for language, which I've been teaching English for 24, not 24 years, I've been an admin in between, um, but mostly like English related uh, administrative positions um, globally in, in different countries and in different parts of the world. Um, but it also gives me the opportunity to work with teachers, have district level impact, and also teach because I get to teach one class, which I think fuels my passion and my fire. And so I have been offered positions um, in administration in the past that would take me out of my classroom completely. And that's not something that interests me. And so I'm really excited to be a part of this team that is, you know, really doing the work and not performatively, but really like pushing back, you know, pushing back against traditional schooling and the way things have been for a really long time to make things better for kids. So that is going to be my new role starting um, this summer. I'm excited for that. But historically, I have I've 
you know, and I think that I'll start with the interesting thing that not a lot of people know. I've been teaching since I was 19. So I graduated from college when I was 19. I finished high school in three years. I finished college in three years. And I started teaching, I started teaching 18 year olds when I was 19. So I have been teaching for more of my life than anything else. And I sometimes think about like, what would I do if I wasn't a teacher? And I don't think that there's anything that I would do other than be a teacher. I just can't imagine. And since I was nine, everybody used to ask me and I, when we would go play in the outside in the backyard, I was always the teacher. We would always role play and I was always the teacher. So I think I've known that since early on, I'm the first person in my family to go to college and graduate. And when I told my mom I was going to be a teacher, she was distraught. She was so upset because in the Arab culture, those who fail go into the humanities. Everybody else goes into the science. So if you're not a doctor or an engineer, you fail. <laughs> and so hopefully that culture is starting to shift a little bit. And she's really proud of me when she sees the impact I've had on kids. Um, but I always say, educators, we craft humans. And by crafting humans, we craft societies. And so what more important role can we actually ever have? And what more important job can we ever have? Because we are crafting those doctors and those lawyers and those Supreme Court judges and the presidents. And they all sat in a classroom at one point and you don't know who's sitting in front of you, but we are crafting that world. And so I think that's where I'm sitting in a lot of my work right now. Much of it is focused on equity um, through my doctoral research and through my national board certification and just other projects that I've extended. I've worked on some national projects with equity through national boards, through um, working on a, a framework for social emotional learning technology and equity with Google. So I've had the the privilege of working on some some projects related to equity that will impact you know, globally the, 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 through these big platforms. And I, I feel like doors open up and opportunities open up. And we're in a time right now where this work is happening. There's so much pushback against this work and there's so much change happening in our community, in our world, that it's, it's a time for all of us to really roll up our sleeves. And it's a call to action to every educator here who's listening. And if you are part of any kind of space that Education is happening, whether you're a parent um, and you're playing a role in your kids community and your kids district, the schools that your kids attend, or you are somebody who already may have may not have kids, but you're a part of a school community um, as a parent, wherever you position yourself as a as a, an equity person, we need to be disrupting and we need to be doing this work full force. Um, so I think that's one thing that we maybe will explore the different ways in this conversation of just thinking about where this work lives and what our responsibilities are, because I think as the world changes, our responsibilities change with it. So I, I love the fact that you talked about, you know, and no pressure, right, to us as educators that, you know, we craft humans, right? And, and as such, right, we're crafting society, we're literally crafting the world uh, that, that, you know, the future generations are going to be, you know, that in which there will reside. And you're absolutely right. And so when we think about the work that you're doing, right, that this equity work, it, it's created, a, there, there's so much buzz around it, right? And, and, and I think on both sides, there, there, there are these proponents that are coming out and everywhere you look, it's equity, 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 equity. Sometimes, and, and I get angry, right? I, I think sometimes it's often misused, even though well-intentioned. And, and then there's on the other side, right? There's this massive pushback, kind of like what we were talking about, you know, before we started recording. And I'm, I'm really trying to figure out how we have spent, you know, the like the last decade or so in the same county doing much of the same work. And I was like, how have we not 
shared space together. Uh, so I, I, I got to be intentional about sharing some space with you. Um, I didn't so know you were I, in the same county. Are you in Illinois? I, I am. I'm part of oh. Chicago Public Schools. And I'm just like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I didn't even know that. So yeah. yeah. Absolutely, have to collaborate and meet for coffee and 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 co-conspirator and like all that stuff. (laughs) Absolutely. So, just world, you hear this? Like, this is going to happen. Um. So, I'm curious, you know, with all the work that you've done, right? You know, in 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 all these different spaces, and obviously pushing back, you know. And I love this idea about being a disruptor. What do you want to? Where do you want to focus the conversation? Right. The the whole point of the show is to say, we're going to push back on these narratives. Right, that that continue to marginalize, that continue to to negatively portray individuals, and I'm sure, like you, right, at some point, I said, enough's enough. Like we 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 need to stop those conversations and begin pushing back. And so I'm curious, which direction do you want to go? I'm sure this could be like a three part episode and, and run in <laughs> multiple directions. So I think I think um, my own lived experiences and my own personal story is a story of liberation in a lot of ways. I fought for everything that I am and everything that I have. Um, from a cultural perspective, I married into a very cultural family, um, and my my ex husband didn't believe in women getting their education, and so getting my education was something that was it was my dowry because my father knew it was the most important thing to me. But my ex did not honor his promises, and so getting my education was something I had to fight for. Um, as an Arab and Muslim woman in the field of education, it is often, as a student, a very traumatic place all the way through graduate school. As an educator, it has, and especially post-Trump, post-9-11, it has continued to get more and more aggressive. I have had my fair share. I don't call them microaggressions because there's nothing micro about them. They're definitely macro. And I think that with all of those experiences and focusing my dissertation on the perceptions of inclusion and belonging of Arab American students in historically homogenous school districts, but also shifting my curriculum to work with students. Because I I always thought to myself, like, if I had these conversations that I had when I focused on equity in graduate school as 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 an adolescent, it would have shifted my whole trajectory. I would have been able to fight much sooner than I realized when I was in the like mid-aged and realized that I deserve better and started to push back against a lot of things, both in my personal life and in my professional life. And so I thought to myself, why aren't we having these conversations with adolescents? And that is the core of my curriculum. I have, I am a believer that we have to start working with kids and not work for them. And that we have to have these conversations with them before they get to a college and career world. Because if we're saying that the the K through 12 schools are supposed to be preparing students for the real world, how are we preparing them for the real world if they don't even know what their positionality is in a, in a country that has positioned them in the same place since its inception? So and how and how to navigate that so that they are active players and decision makers in their own lives as opposed to receivers of other people's decisions so they can shift the status quo with what they know. How do I turn English into a source of power? How do I teach my students that a period is a place that you force someone to sit in your words? It's not the end of a sentence. How do I teach them that rhetoric is shaping your speech so that you can appeal to somebody and thinking about your audience and thinking about how to appeal to them is something that you need to think about when we're talking about rhetoric. Why am I going to study rhetoric from the Gettysburg Address when I can have the students craft something using rhetoric that is meaningful to them, right? And so these are ways that I've shifted the curriculum to really get students to see the power and the liberation that's in literacy and to see how they can take power historically that, that we've historically taken away from them in schools 
take it back and really make something that is going to empower them, not just in my classroom, but forever, because these are tools in their toolbox that they're going to take with them once they leave that space. And along the lines of watching all of that kind of come together, I've realized that we have been tiptoeing around equity conversations forever. And that is why we have not seen that shift and that movement that you were talking about. We've been in the same place for for centuries, right? It, like we said before we started recording, the, the progress towards equity takes decades. And unraveling that, we're watching it happen in real time, like instantly. And it's a scary thing how quickly taking it back happens, but moving forward is so it takes forever. And I think one of the con constructs of systemic oppression is that we continue to wait for everyone to buy in. And so we're not, we're, and we're worried about white fragility and we're constantly worrying about like upsetting and making people uncomfortable. So my thing now is, no, you can be uncomfortable and I'm not going to sugarcoat. The reality is, and this is it, Charles, like we need to be real for every naysayer, and for everyone who's pushing back and for everyone who's afraid and for everyone who knows that this is the truth, but you haven't found the courage to stand up to the powers that be in whatever system you're in or whatever district you're in, or even in your home with the family, somebody who's sitting on your dinner table sometimes. Think about the reality that we are the only country in the world right now that has mass shootings. We are the only country in the world that has lockdown drills and our babies have to prepare themselves for a possible mm -hmm. live shooter in a building, right? We are the only country in the world that has these issues. So much of it is race driven, but a lot of it is also kids who don't feel like they belong. And I always say it, black scholarship has always advocated for black, for the black community, but everything that they advocated for would have helped every student, every person in our context, every person in our community. They never advocated for something that would elevate them at the, at the price of anybody else. Our most oppressed community advocated for everyone. And so this isn't any different. When we talk about advocacy for our marginalized communities, we are advocating for what the research says, those middle, middle upper middle class white young men who are primarily walking into schools and are school shooters. We're thinking about them too, right? Because the research has shown, the, the latest report came out, that most of these young men are kids who felt like they didn't belong in their context. And so when we talk about belonging, when we talk about doing this work where we're really seeing kids in our classrooms, we're seeing every kid. We're making sure that every student feels like they belong. We're making sure that every student feels like they're that they understand each other. When you're creating, when you're giving students the opportunities to be co-creators and you're giving students the opportunities to really delve into the cultural and linguistic pluralism and create these strong communities in classrooms, because what's happening is those become accurate mirrors for themselves. But at the same time, they're creating windows for other kids to really understand who they are. And little by little, we're chipping away at those stereotypes that have existed historically because we're opening the doors for us to be able to develop the skills to have critical conversations in controlled environments. And that's where the mind shift happens, right? And if this work was happening more prevalently in schools, what's going to happen when this generation of kids, and I always say we're going to get old and they're going to take over, right? They are the next judges, the next lawyers, the next police officers. I think of George Floyd and I think about like through the whole entire process, if one of those police officers was sitting in a classroom where these conversations were happening, at any point, would it have shifted the narrative, right? When we talk about all of these different situations that are happening in our country, if a lawyer, if a, if a judge, if a police officer, if somebody along the line from A to Z in a situation sat in a classroom and recognized and realized that what was happening was another crime, would it have disrupted and changed the narrative for these victims of the system? 
And I think it really would have. So thinking about like, how can we really spread this work where we're engaging students, but it can't happen until our educators have done the work themselves. And so we have a personal vested interest as a country to do this work, whether we agree with it or not. It, we really need to put our feelings on the side because our country is broken. That is the reality. We cannot sugarcoat that reality anymore. When I send my child to school, I am scared. I, she had, they had a lockdown drill and they thought there was a live shooter. We literally sat in front of her school for three hours, not knowing what was going on in there. She had a panic attack. My daughter has severe anxiety. It was the scariest thing. You send your child to school every single day. You don't know if you're going to see them when they come, when they're, they're going to make it back home again. We work in schools. We don't know what the situation is going to be. We're constantly practicing these things, but we're hearing about them happening in different schools at all levels, from elementary to college, all over our country. What is it going to take for us to recognize and realize that we are broken and we need to heal it? Whether it's sending your child to a concert, sending you going out to a club, like even marathons, where any public gathering has become dangerous and only in America, right? We're so quick to criticize all of these countries that we consider third world. I don't know mm -hmm. anything that's more third world. <laughs> yeah, no, you're absolutely right. So, so for everybody who's pushing back against this conversation, that fear, what fear does, and I always tell this to my students, when we think about fear, when fear is elevated, rationale is diminished. There is no rationale. People act and react with fear. And the only way to eliminate fear is for us to educate ourselves. And through education, we start to understand and little by little, we'll see the fear diminish and the rationale will, will, will take over and people will become more rational and be able to react and act in ways that are not so reactive, right? And so we understand each other. We can start to have community. I dare anyone, <laughs> I always say this with 100% pride, come into any classroom of mine from the five classes that I teach and, and find a community like our community. We are a family. It's even funny, I was talking to my, um, I teach a research as a, for, as a form of activism class and they find, they do like mini dissertations. And so they, they, they defended their dissertations um, last week at the end of the week. And we were kind of talking about now we have to create like elevator pitches or all social justice research projects and they all have to relate to our district. And so they now have to create elevator pitches to speak to stakeholders about their findings and the suggestions that they have in order to implement their findings and improve things at our school. And so we were talking about like just it was funny because every time I would grade their papers and look at their dissertation and give them feedback, they would all make the same mistakes. So I'm like, okay, you guys had a conversation again. Like the community is so close knit that when they do the work, they all talk about it first. So when they make a mistake, it's in every paper, like across the board. That's how close they are. We have a beautiful community and it's a diverse community of students. It's kids who are coming from different backgrounds, who speak different languages. They look different. They are different sexual orientations. They're different gender. They're just, they're different kids and they are, it's a harmonious, beautiful environment. We really care for each other. And it doesn't end when they leave the class in May because throughout the summer, they're, they're organizing, they're writing, they're creating, they're doing it together. They're going to rallies and protests. They're creating poetry and spoken word art. They're continuing the work collectively and individually, even after the class ends, because they start to begin, they start to see what it means to be equity and not do equity. And that's a lesson that I think a lot of our teachers need to learn is that you can't do equity. You can't put your equity hat on when you're writing a lesson plan. You can't put your equity hat on when you're walking into your classroom space how you position yourself in your social environment, who you surround yourself with, where you choose to live, who your friends are, 
All of those things will impact how you show up in front of your students when you're positioned as the person with the power in front of them in a classroom space. And so when we, when we hear teachers now saying like, yeah, I'm an equitable person, but I work in a system that is so anti this work and I have no power. Yes, you do have power. Everybody has power. You are positioned with power and you have the locus of control in that classroom to see kids, to give them space, even if you are being censored and you can't choose whatever text you want to choose in your classroom or you can't teach whatever lesson you want to teach, but you have the ability to see students. Teachers have the ability to dismantle double consciousness and duality that many of our kids walk around with because it's not a safe space, right? That is powerful in and of itself. Making a student feel like he doesn't have to assimilate and making a student feel like who you are is beautiful and should be celebrated, that's equity, right? Celebrating individuality, celebrating what makes us different, that's equity. Because if I can get a student to value him or herself, then eventually other kids in that space will start to value each other. It has to start somewhere. But we don't have the foundation of it. And so we need to stop beating around the bush because as we beat around the bush and we're afraid to have these real conversations, we're continuing to see the violence in our communities erupt. And it's scary. It's really scary. Like, what is it going to come down to? And so I think that's where I'm at now. I'm at a place where I refuse to beat around the bush. I walk up in keynotes, you know, keynotes and I'm like, we're not going to sit here and sugarcoat the work. If you're uncomfortable, good. I'm glad. I hope you're uncomfortable because we've been uncomfortable for a really long time. Mm -hmm. And this is what it feels like. I am not centering white fragility anymore. And when my, my principal and sometimes the guidance counselors, I work with the entire team with students who really struggle with some of this conversation because it's raw in our classroom space. And you have kids that come from homes where this is very against a lot of the things that they've grown up with. And so there's always pushback. There's pushback from colleagues, there's pushback from kids, there's pushback from parents. And, you know, they'll come and they'll say, should we move this kid to another classroom? Because we have full autonomy. So the teacher across from me could be teaching the great Gatsby and all of the, the dead white men. And in my class, I refuse to teach those narratives at all because we're doing only marginalized and uplifting marginalized communities because I feel like they get enough of that other stuff in other classes. And so um, should we move this student to another classroom that's more traditional? I said, no, he's the one that needs to be here. He can be uncomfortable. It's okay. You know, and I have had kids struggle initially, but with time, I had a student who was an informal leader who struggled the whole entire year with a conversation and pushed back. And then I have a day of action conference where I bring in speakers who um, work in dismantling systems of inequity in different focuses and fields. So I had somebody come in from the juvenile justice system, somebody from finance, someone from urban planning, journalism, all these different fields. And they talk about how they've noticed, named and had named and noticed and disrupted. Um, inequities in their fields. And so, and my students do a lot of journaling. So in his journal, after the day of action, he wrote one line, he said, I get it now. And for the rest of the year, he became one of the most vocal activists. And the many of the kids who were on the fence followed him because he was an informal leader. But if, if I gave him the ticket to get out of my class early on, mm -hmm. we would have never been able to make that progress. And so he needed to sit in his discomfort in order for him to come to terms with what was making him uncomfortable so that he can get over it and recognize and realize his role as a white man in doing this work. And it took experts from outside to come and name how these different systems exist by design for him to see it. Because to, to him, when he looked at me, I was somebody who, put, who was pushing an agenda for most of the year. So the power came in a space where we had a bunch of different people who came from different backgrounds saying the same thing that I was saying to him all year. And he bought into it. And it was so powerful when he did. I always say that's probably one of my most like 
I don't know if, if people like if I want to look back at my career, it's probably one of the highlights of my career because I feel like it just validated for me the fact that this work is powerful for everybody. And even if they're pushing back, even if they're uncomfortable, something sinks in. And even if it takes a little bit more time to water and marinate, it's there and it's important and it needs to be there. Um, so I am now in a lot of my public speaking and a lot of the workshops that I do and a lot of my consulting work, I'm working with schools to try to implement this curriculum across content areas because it doesn't just have to live in English. It's something that we should all be doing. Um, and also thinking about systemic equity. What does it look like? Because if it's just sitting with teachers in a classroom space, then it's not really equity, right? So we have to think about like HR decisions, the dean's office, our superintendents, our department chairs, our, everybody in the building has a role in ensuring that we are being equity and not doing equity. And if it's not happening on a systemic level, then, then it's just performative. And so a lot of the work that I've been doing lately has also been focused on like, what does it look like in your locus of control for you to be doing this work and supporting it? full like with intentionality so yeah i feel like i did a whole lot there <laughs> you did you did i have like an entire page of notes here and you know i'm like oh that'll be and then you say something else great and i'm like okay where where, where are we going to go to next um, <laughs> so i i think one of the things that you mentioned that's really resonating with me as is, is i'm trying to kind of encapsulate you know all of the wonderful things that you had just mentioned was this idea you know, you started off with the word liberation, right? And, and when we look at our educational, educational spaces, you know, you reference them as these controlled environments, right? And, and I think for a very long time and still to this day, right, it, it's this, these spaces where there are, right, systems do what systems are designed to do. And there, the education is a tool to drive this, this control, right? Um, I, I'm trying to remember this exact uh, quote that I re was reading with Nogira, but you know, it, it's exactly that. It's this idea that, hey, when we're in these spaces that are designed to perpetuate these inequities, designed to perpetuate, you know, these systems of oppression, that when education's a tool, I remember reading that, and I and I immediately, as an educator, I, I felt offended. And I was like, no, that's not what we do. That's not who I am. I'm, I'm, I'm not participating in the system. And, and I really had to process it and take a step back. And I was like, but you know what? In, in the large part, if, if we're just going along, that's exactly what we're doing, right? I, I was an English teacher for a very long time and struggled with that ideology. Like we, you referenced a little bit this idea of, do we teach the traditional canon, right? Or do we expose students to other things? And what I hear oftentimes now as, a, as an administrator is, right, teachers are pushing back whenever we begin to, to challenge traditional curriculums, when we begin to challenge traditional approaches, the, the ideologies or pedagogy of, well, we need to prepare students for the real world, right? That, that, that's that thing that we pull out of our pocket. And, and so I, I really appreciate the fact that you said, well, yeah, well, let's, let's do exactly that. Let's, let's get them ready to face the injustices, to face those issues that they're going to see, you know, outside of this world as, as if they're not doing it already. Like let's have those brutally honest conversations and just the, just, I, I believe it was yesterday as I was doing one of the reach evaluations for a teacher, you know, they were, they were talking about American imperialism, right? And they were talking about how it was like, 
hey, no, you know, the um, the Monroe Doctrine, right? No, Europe, you can't push into Central and South America. We're not going to allow you to influence them, right? And then the students were realizing, oh, yeah, that's because it was like, well, you can because we are, right? And, and really having these these honest conversations about, you know, these historical accuracies that unfortunately, right, disrupt this, this pastoralized uh, vision of America that, you know, like you and I were taught as, as we were growing up and it, it terrifies people, right? And I get that when, when systems are disrupted, when, when control is disrupted, because you no longer know what things are going to happen, right? When, when you can, when you have control, when you have these systems, you could predict what's going to come. And when you could predict what's going to come, it's very, very easy to manipulate. It's very easy to, to remain in power. But when, when that's disrupted, it's like, well, now I'm, now I'm frightened because that the, 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 I guess the playing field begins to get leveled, you know? And, and so I'm curious, right? We we started having a little bit of this conversation, and you're right. Like the young man who was in your space, and they're like, uh, maybe we should take them out. No, 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 no. Everyone needs to feel the same discomfort that we have had forever. I, I guess my question now is, why do you think there there is such this this push to say it's okay? for these marginalized populations to have experienced discomfort, right? They've, they've experienced discomfort for generations upon generations upon generations. And now we're becoming to feel discomfort and now it's not okay, right? Now we want to unravel the progress that's been made. We want to put a stop to these things. Like, why do you think, I guess, maybe twofold, has it taken so long for us to say, like you're saying, we need to have these honest conversations. Let's strip off the bandaid. Let's take off all the, the sugar coating. Let's just be very truthful and honest, regardless of how people feel. And why is there this such a pushback? Well, because any new change, look at how much disruption AI is, the artificial intelligence is causing in education. It's, it's every, every, everything new and everything like that is that we can't control is, is scary. Right. Anything that's going to shift the way things have always been. Like, how many times do you go into schools and you're like, why are we doing this? And they're like, well, this is how we've always done it. You know, it's a phenomenon. And that is why we it's stinting growth. We aren't growing. We aren't changing. We're not going to change. People have an interest in keeping things the way they are. Right. This country was designed for things to be the way they are. And so in order for us, it's like when we're sitting here talking about, you know, I get so frustrated when I walk into schools and they're like, equity is changing the curriculum. No, it's not. It's not changing the curriculum. You can't just throw a, a, a black or brown author into your curriculum and say, I have achieved equity. No, you haven't. <laughs> and do you it know? during their respective months of celebration. Right. Oh, and I hate those months. And I, <laughs> and I said that every time I did an event for Arab Heritage Month this this last month, because I literally reached out to every platform, everybody who had a platform. I was like, what are you doing for Arab Heritage Month? And everybody said, we have never done anything. And I said, I hate these months. I don't believe in celebrating people in months. But if this is what's going to get the conversation going in these schools, then I'm going to leverage this platform for us to get the conversation going. So I agree 100% or even worse, like I always call it well-intentioned harmful impact, right? That's what happens with a lot of educators. I don't believe ever, I, I, I really, really don't believe that anybody goes into education as like, oh, I'm going to go harm kids. Nobody does that. Everybody who goes, and nobody goes into education because it's the best paying 
field. Nobody goes into education because it's the easiest job. We go into education because we're passionate about kids and doing right by kids, right? And so everybody walks in with their set of moral values and their social conditioning and their social norms. And many of us have been socialized by the same curriculum and the same things that we all are wearing the same. And we're forming this invisible lens through media, through everything else that we form as adolescents. And then it becomes what we see everything through in life. And we haven't done the work to unlearn. And so whether we like to believe it or not, we're inflicting harm. And it can't just sit in curriculum because if you don't have the capacity and the tools to disrupt the curriculum and teach it, from a, an equitable perspective, then you're you're intentionally you're unintentionally harming kids. That tool that you put into the classroom as something that you think is equity, and you're running with it, you're harming kids, and it's so much more harmful because you think you're doing good, right? Equity has to be accountability. Equity means we're disrupting systems. Equity means we're looking at who the frequent flyers in the dean's office are and wondering why they're there. We're looking at our most marginalized communities and we're doing right by them. We're not looking at the kids who are achieving and, and the top tier of our students, which is where we tend to focus. Oh, look how many kids. If you have one child who isn't successful, then you have failed. That is one child too many. You know, it's it's like when you hear people saying like, oh, but we don't have a lot of Arab students or we don't have a lot of black students. Well, how many do you need in order for you to be equitable to that demographic of students? Why does there have to be, if, one, if you have one, that's one, that one is enough for us to say, how do we meet the individual needs of this particular student? We don't need them in numbers, right? It means that administrators are willing to hold themselves accountable first, but then also hold their teachers accountable so that if you are complying to what we are talking about when we, when we define equity as a district, as a school, then we're going to make it so uncomfortable for you that you will eventually leave because mm -hmm. this is the accountability mm -hmm. piece. It's part of the interview process. It is part of how we think about homework, right? Like, I work in a district where so many of my kids are, they have to work full-time jobs. They don't have a choice. So they leave school at three o'clock and they work till 10, 11 o'clock. And so many of the kids that are in college prep classes, which are our lowest level courses or in our tapestry program are kids who are working full-time jobs and they don't have time to do their homework. So we have set them up to fail. And then you've got the honors kids are often the kids who don't have to work full-time jobs or don't have to work at all. And so they can give their education as much time as it needs because they have the privilege of being able to do so because they have less responsibility. So we're basically punishing kids because they have to work, right? Because their their parents, you know, they, they need their support financially or in order for them to buy their first car or go to college or be able to have a little bit of spending money, they need to have these jobs. And so we're saying, hey, if you're going to have a job, then we're basically going to set you up to fail because we're not going to think about our homework policy. We're not going to think about all the hours that we ask students to put in. And this is something as an English teacher, I've, I've struggled with and I've had to find ways to work around because you cannot read every page of a novel in a classroom. And so I've really struggled with how do I work with this inequity and think about this inequity so I can make the, the level out the playing field for all of my students, but at the same time without in, in, like really kind of putting into question the integrity of the course or the rigor of the course because I'm not watering it down. I'm kids will come and say all the time, Dr. Jaber, it's physics in your class or the hardest classes. And I don't, I don't track. I teach all three levels. I teach um, honors, college prep and AP, but I teach them all the same curriculum because I believe that whatever we aim for our students, I scaffold more for kids who need more support, more support, but they're doing the same stuff and they're, they're creating the same outputs and they have the same choices and they're reading a lot of the same text because they're capable. It was never a question of whether they're able to or not. It's just the question of, can they do the homework and do the extra things that we ask them to do outside of school hours or not. And I have found 
on the contrary, that my most create the most creativity comes from the kids that we write off as unacademic kids, mm-hmm. that they are not successful in being ac- in academic spaces. And I have found those kids create the most beautiful things, the most powerful pieces, because they talk from experience, from experience, because when they finally come into a class like this one, oftentimes it's the first place they're able to really be who they are. And they're seen from an asset mindset and they feel empowered and they're not looked down on like, oh, here's another, you know, I have this kid again, you know, and I am very intentional about making sure that early on in the year, those are the kids that I'll call home first and say how great they are. Those are the kids that I make sure to check in with. Those are the kids that I'll stand in the hallway and wait for and just, you know, talk to before anything, because these are the kids that are invisible in our district and uh, in our districts as a country and are often the kids who are screaming out for attention in ways that we call discipline issues and are problematic. So when they are getting the attention that they need and the attention that they deserve, then all of those, I've never written a referral. My department chair comes in to observe me. He said, this is the first class that I see where kids are working from bell to bell and I don't have to prompt them. They respect the work that we're doing and it means something to them personally. And so by making these shifts and then seeing them impact, like my students created a student equity board. My students speak with me at conferences. They've spoken with me at almost 40 conferences in the last year and a half. And they stand up fearlessly. They've done opening keynote, uh, keynotes in, in conferences like IdeaCon, which serves between two and 4,000 teachers. And these are kids who will stand up and tell their truth without even thinking about who's in that space. They don't know who's in the space. Um, and so like, I look at them and I'm like, I couldn't do that when I was your age. How powerful yeah. would it have been if I could? I don't know many adults who can do that today, right? But even hearing it from students, hearing it from the mouths of students and hearing the trauma that students have experienced and watching adults respond to that when they're hearing it from kids is so much more powerful than hearing it from me or from you or from any adult because it's the kids talking about their experiences and how they've experienced school. So I think with any change, there's always going to be pushback. Like I've had people ask me, like, aren't you scared as an English teacher of, of, of CHAP GBT? And I'm like, no, because what my kids are creating is authentic stuff about themselves. A bot can't write it. I'm not worried. You know, I, I, this is, maybe this is going to force us to teach more authentically. Maybe this is going to finally force us to walk away from canon texts and really teach things that our kids can relate to. Maybe it's going to walk, make us walk away from giving our students worksheets about chapters that they've read and having them regurgitate information that isn't theirs or having them memorize poetry that's not their words and saying to them, you've read this, be inspired by it, but now create something that's yours. Elevate your voice. Take back your narrative right? This is your, your opportunity to really share with the world who you are and what's important to you. What are the most imp- issue, important issues of your pen and why are they important? Why do you choose to share the story? How is it the most important story? Why, who is it important to? You know, and, and why do you want to share it? And who do you want to share it with? How do you want to share it? Like even giving them back the opportunity to be creative. Like kids don't know what to do with it. Hey, Dr. Jaber, how long? How long do you want it to be? How do you want me to present it? How do you want to present it? So like my kids are currently writing their counter narratives. Some of them have written them in TED Talks. Some of them have created podcasts. Some of them have created videos. Some of them have created spoken word art. They're all writing their counter narratives, how you choose to write it. Some of them have created art fixtures. Some of them have written music and composed like actual symphonies because they're, they've been in choir and in, musical, in the musical field with, with schools for the last four years. And they're literally performing every single week. So that's how they speak. And they're all composing counter narratives. They have all the parts of a story. They've created character. They've done all the English things. They've checked them off, but they've done it in the most authentic way. And it's something that they're proud of and it's meaningful, not just to them, 
but to the external community. And so, yeah, I just, I think that change is scary because it shifts the power. And anytime we take the power from somebody, it's going to be a threat. So I, this is just a, a tangent that I thought about just now. I, I love the fact that your students are doing, you know, these counter narrative uh, projects. And I, I don't know, you know, the the district's policy and things like that, but I, w- I would love to offer a space, right, on a podcast with the very same name to say, how can we amplify the work of some of these students, whether it is, you know, just playing some of that music, whether it's reading aloud some of their work, having them read that, um, just just thinking, maybe that that's an off, you know, podcast conversation for logistics and things. But I, as soon as you said it, I was like, this is, this is beautiful, right? And, and that needs to happen more often. I, and I just was like, I want to be a part of it if that's possible. So yeah, absolutely. I mean, they share all of their work publicly. So if you follow me on a Twitter at SJ Educate, there I'm always hashtagging Room Two Hundred Eight and posting their work. And so those those will be coming out as their kids are creating them. So they're 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 finalizing them and turning them in. I actually had a few students present theirs today, and they were phenomenal. Um, but yeah, they their their work is constantly being shared. They're proud of their work. They've spoken in podcast at po- in podcasts. They've spoken at conferences. They are willing to speak wherever anybody will listen. And when they speak, uh, they're just, I always say they steal the show, right? It's its so much better than anything I ever have to say. Yeah, I, I've seen, right, some of the things. And, and I really wish, like, I didn't make it to IdeaCon. And then I was seeing the pictures and I saw this. And I was like, man, I, I missed something phenomenal that occurred there. So definitely want to see some more of that work. And, and, and you know, obviously, as I'm connecting with you, right, hearing some of your students, and, you know, I, I heard a lot in this last, you know, this last response of this, this idea of discomfort, right? In fact, just uh, on, on Monday, um, was it Monday? I don't know. Earlier this week, I, I was having a conversation with someone right around chat GPT. And that was the exact kind of, they were like, but what about, what about, and that was my response, right? Maybe this will be one of those things that push us outside of our comfort zones and to really begin doing the things that we've claimed that we've been doing, doing the things that we've always been saying that we should be doing, but we kind of keep falling back into, you know, our comfort zones. And so I I kept hearing this idea of the need for discomfort, right? And as we're disrupting, as we're pushing to liberate education, if you will, we, we need to make individuals feel discomfort so that way they can move hopefully right in the right direction and, and not panic and not run back and say, well, now I don't like this. I'm going to take it apart. So that way I don't have to be, you know, uncomfortable anymore. And and I think you and I, we, we, we come into these spaces and we have these conversations and, and I almost thought you were going to say something that I often say, like, I, I don't know how I still have a job, right? Like well, I, I, I always say, <laughs> I'm, going to, I'm going to tell you, I honestly, and I don't like to use the term suicide. I don't take it lightly, but I always say I've committed professional suicide. I'm a doctor. That's a teacher in a classroom. And up until this job that reached out to me and said, please apply, I've applied for administrative positions for the last 12 years and haven't been able to get ahead, not in my current school district or in other districts. I'm always, it's, I always make it to the final two and there's always something, but I'm a firm believer that it's two things. It's my equity stance because I am not sugarcoating things and I am very like, I'm going to say it how it is. And we really need to start having these conversations more explicitly and honestly, if we're going to see change. And I am holding people accountable. So like when we, I, I work on a team with four to six t- teachers on and off. 
um, to, to do the district equity. And when we started talking about like, what does it look like? And I said, well, we have to start with our leadership. We can't start with our teachers. I refuse to start with our teachers. So we started with our district superintendents, assistant superintendents, principals, department chairs, everybody who's in a leadership position. And for the last year, we've been talking about what does it look like for you to disrupt within your locus of control? Because if we don't start there, then teachers are constantly pushing against the grain and your naysayers will get comfortable because nobody's holding them accountable. So it's, it's got to start with the people who have the power, the gatekeepers first, understanding in order for them to push back. And then once that happens, yeah, you're not going to stay quiet about it. People are going to feel uncomfortable, but it's not just the naysayers who feel uncomfortable. This work is very uncomfortable for me. I'm constantly being re-traumatized. Our, our, we, a lot of this learning happens at the expense of you being vulnerable and sharing a lot of the experiences that you had. Listening to people process their, their own equity journey isn't easy because there's often a lot of harm and a lot of ignorance in a lot of those journeys that you have to also be exposed to and listen to. And you have to find a way of navigating that so that you are being composed and, and like, you know, you're, you're facilitating that journey for a lot of people, that's harmful too. That That's uncomfortable for me. So it's not my black and brown students sitting in those classes, my LGBTQ community sitting in the classes, hearing their classmates sometimes process their journeys. That's also hard for them. Making sure that they feel like it's okay for you to, somebody who's constantly been othered since they were a child and told who you are isn't who you need to be, all of a sudden asking them to reclaim who they are and be very explicit with who they are, that's uncomfortable. That that goes against everything that we've been telling them for the last 10 years. And so now you're saying everything that you've, you've been told all in these last whatever in schools that you've been socialized, I want you to put that away and I want you to figure out how to be somebody completely different in this space. It takes time. That's a lot of just uncomfortable work for many of the kids, including our marginalized communities. This work isn't comfortable for anybody. And I always tell my kids at the beginning of the year, this is going to be the most uncomfortable class, but it's uncomfortable because we're growing. And I and I always I love you guys. Like I, this is a place where there's love, but it's going to be a tough space. And I I prepare them for that from the very beginning. And I'm constantly giving them like sometimes they walk in and I know we just need to circle time. We get together in the middle of a circle, all of us at the same level, and we just need to decompress together because these conversations are heavy. They're heavy for adults. They're even heavier for kids. So giving them the space like I see you, I hear you, you matter. What do you need in this space right now so that we can continue to work when we're ready to work? There's a lot of that happening too. the social. There's no I think you cannot separate social emotional learning from equity. Those two things are tied hand in hand. When we told teachers, hey, now you're also responsible for kids, social, emotional health in your classroom space and didn't give them any tools to do that. We didn't we failed to tie that in with equity, because when we see kids. That's equity. And when we see kids, that's addressing their and we're able to address their needs, that's social emotional learning. We're giving them the space to be who they really are. And we're telling them that whatever I when my students journal, I always give them the prompt, I wish my teacher knew. And I always say, if we're talking about something that's not important to you in the moment because there's something bigger happening to you, abandon whatever we're working on and talk about what you need. Because you matter and you can't do this work if you're not in a healthy space to do it. And, and whatever work we need to do together, because we're a community, we are, you know, when one part of the body hurts, the whole entire body feels it. We're a body and we're a community. We're moving, we're moving individually, but we're moving as a collective and we care for each other. So there's that piece of like, yes, that American individualism, because you need to think of equity in three and from three prongs, right? It's the individual, the relational and the systemic. And so we need to interrogate the systemic, but it can't happen if we're not looking at it from an individual perspective. And both the systemic and the, indiv the individual and the systemic are relational. It affects how we see each other, how we act with each other. 
And so we really need to think about all three of those things at the same time. We can't wait for one to happen to finish because it never finishes for us to start the other. It's all happening at the same time. And so, yeah, I, I just think it, it's, it's, it, that discomfort is discomfort for everyone who's doing this work. And as a country and a nation who wants to make these changes, we need to sit in that discomfort. We need to embrace it. And we need to know that it's time for us to all be uncomfortable for the sake of the healing. Because if we don't, we're just going to continue to see these things escalate. It started out with one shooting in, in Columbine. And now look at how often we're seeing them. It started out in a high school and now we're seeing them in elementary schools. Like it's just, you know, it started out in schools and now they're happening everywhere. Like it's, what is it going to take for us to say, we really need to address these issues? Yeah, I think I, I was listening to the radio the other day and it, it mentioned that during the first four months of this year alone, that we averaged four people dying every day or yeah, I think it was every day from these mass shootings. Like that was the average. And it was like just an astonishing number. And you're right. Like when, when I can remember when Columbine happened and it was so like out of the blue. Right. And now it is part of our routines and norms. And I remember seeing this TikTok thing about a teacher like, when I say this code, we know what to do. And it was, it was an active shooter drill. And it's like, I mean, that, I think that's a whole nother, a whole nother conversation. Um, and, and I wanted to highlight something that you said, because, you know, I often wonder as we're doing this work right in our classrooms and we've, we've got these naysayers, the people pushing back, those who are so insistent upon just reverting back to those I'm just going to turn that off really quick. One second. Sure, so sure. Sorry. So sorry. It's sunset. So that's the call to prayer. Oh, no, you're fine. Okay. Um, go ahead. So, you know, it was this idea that, well, look, like we're, we're doing the work, but it, it's not working, right? The, these kids, like it, and of course we, we consistently point the finger at the students, but something you said really resonated and I wanted to highlight it is that when when students are consistently being told that narrative about who they are, right, even if, even if somewhere deep down inside they know it's not true, in order for them to step into, like you, as you mentioned, like, well, who are you as a person? That's a really scary journey, right? And so the idea is like, you know what? Instead of taking that journey, instead of trying to figure out who I am and maybe being terrified of what I discover, right? The, you know, and of course now I'm forgetting the, uh, the, the, the quote, right? Be like, there's so much potential and amazingness, right? That it should terrify you. This, this, this idea that, you know, I'm just going to instead play it safe, right? Instead of stepping into that zone, as we've been talking about of discomfort, I'm going to play it safe. And it plays right into that 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 narrative of like, see, right? Th this is why this is not going to work. See, I told you it's not going to work. I but maybe, maybe that needs to be heard more often because I know for me, when you said it, you know, a light bulb went off, you know, is, is this one of the reasons why, you know, despite some of the work that we're doing, we, we don't often or, or immediately see the shifts that we hope for. Um, 
The irony though, Charles, is that when we're playing it safe, we're creating unsafe. We're we are actively creating and adding to Mm -hmm. these unsafe conditions that we are all living in right now. And we're talking about things as violent as school shootings, but we need to think about the curriculum violence that happens in classrooms every single day. When a teacher walks in with a novel like The Hate You Give and teaches it from the perspectives of the difficulties of being a cop. When students are sitting in classrooms who are Arab and Muslim listening to the 9-11 narrative, my daughter was asked to apologize for 9-11 in front of her English class. Oh, geez. These are things that are happening, right? We have teachers who literally, I mean, during during COVID, parents were sitting in their kids' classrooms and and we were getting recordings of of the most ridiculous things teachers were saying like one of the par- one of the cl- classrooms in my kids local district where there's 38% arab par- primarily palestinian students the teacher was saying well palestinians deserve everything that they're getting and all the violence that's being inflicted on them because you guys walk around knifing israelis like where do you get your current events and your history from and how do you say that to a group of Palestinian kids? Like, it's okay for you to be bombed. It's okay for your your people to be ethnically cleansed. How is that acceptable anywhere? That's curriculum violence. There's curriculum violence happening in all school in schools everywhere. That's besides the hidden curriculum of the world, right? Our experience, our, when we grew up, when I grew up, my parents would take us home, lock the door, and that's it. You were cut off from the rest of the world. These kids are experiencing the world through their fingertips. They're constantly immersed in the world. You can't hide the world from them. You can't filter things for them anymore. They're seeing it all on TikTok. They're seeing it all on Instagram. They're seeing it all on Twitter. They're exposed. They know by default, this is their world, right? And for everybody who says schools aren't political, you are being political when you're deciding what not to bring into a space and what not to acknowledge and whose experiences you're going to negate. That is political, right? It's not your politics, but it is political. Those are statements we're basically telling kids that what you're experiencing doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter your history is invalid, your current events are invalid, your family's heritage is invalid, you're responsible for things like 9-11. Like the jails are full of black people because black people, they have broken family units and, and like they can't get it together is what I've heard from adults, not from children, from adults who teach children. I had a teacher walk into my class, put her hand on my shoulder in a class, in a district that had a 600% growth of kids who look like me and say, how do you feel after what your people did in France? Referencing ISIS. She saw my hijab and I was a part of ISIS because I was a Muslim woman. And this is a teacher who taught kids who look like me every single day, right? So the reality is these are things that are happening to kids all the time. It's not just the school shootings. These are things that might lead to violence in our buildings, but there's curriculum violence happening in schools all day long. Our kids are sitting in that violence all day long. And they are adolescents, so developmentally, they even if they had the tools to push back and speak up, they don't want to. They just want to fit. They just want to belong because that's where they are developmentally. And there's also a disproportionality in power in that space. So Absolutely. anything that they're going to say or do is going to be used against them, right? And so where does that leave them? So, so at the end of the day, we have to acknowledge that by playing it safe, we're adding to these unsafe conditions. We're, we're perpetuating and creating the unsafe conditions that we're seeing in our world today. And, and this is the real, like we talked about a pandemic. This is the pandemic. It's not COVID. <laughs> 
It's this violence. It's these shootings. It's this harm that curriculum is creating. It's the fact that we are purposely not seeing kids. It's the fact that we've been talking about this for decades and we're now retracting and taking back the little progress that we've made over time. You know, it's it's the fact that we are sitting here talking about like, how do I say it so that I'm not, you know, offending people? It's the fact that we have things like Black Wall Street and Little Syria and and all of these different Juneteenth that that have never come up until they've been weaponized and now all of a sudden people know what they are, right? These these parts of American history that have been intentionally erased, and as a country, how how good we are at criticizing international things that are happening that we don't agree with, but we're such hypocrites when we are not looking and interrogating ourselves, right? We talk about settler colonialism. We're going to fix other people's problems. We need to stop doing that and we need to look inside. We need to be more introspective because what we need to fix is so much bigger than anything that we should be meddling with outside of our country borders. And I think that needs to be our stance too, right? Instead of funding all these wars that are happening internationally and really putting our two cents into these foreign policies that are, yes, it's important for us to have these conversations, but let's let's be a little bit more introspective and see the hypocrisy that exists in our own country as a country and be real with that so we can start to shift and really talk about how to make those words that are in paper actualities for everyone right because if we want to sit here and, and really interrogate it it doesn't exist and yes we talk about the real violence which all of these things are leading up to but what gets somebody to a point where they feel that level of anger and hate that they want to go hurt somebody in that way that's the real question we need to be asking. And what other system in our country right now is going to disrupt that besides schools? We focus so much on political advocacy. Well, it's important. I'm not saying we shouldn't definitely vote for and, and try to get, but look at our candidates. Where are we heading as a country? I don't even know who to vote for because bipartisan, we're, like if we're looking at it either way, I'm not sure that there's anybody who really represents anything that I value that's going to push these conversations, push the pendulum back the other way right? Everything that's coming up is so scary. What does it look like next? If we're being censored now, right? Things like that are part of historical, part of our, our, our American civil rights, like your freedom of speech. We can't even, there's laws that are talking that are in certain states that, that don't allow people to talk about boycotting. Boycotting is a part of our American history. Since when did that become a crime? That's your freedom of speech. That's being threatened. Right. What the, these these censors, the censorship, we haven't had these conversations about censorship for decades, for decades in real ways that like we're having them now. The laws that are coming out, we're 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 moving back so quickly. But the way to disrupt that is by making sure that our up and coming voters who are going to become up and coming elected officials who are going to become this. We, we like I interact with 120 students every single year. 120 kids are having those conversations. Can we imagine if this was happening in schools across our country? That's going to shift the dynamic. Our education will impact policy. Policy is impacting education in all the negative ways because the people that are making the choices are uninformed or they're misinformed or they have the single stories and that's all they have. And they have not done the work. And that's what we're seeing in full force as we speak today in our country. And it's very scary. It really is scary. And that's why I was telling you before we even recorded, that's one of the reasons why I think anybody who's advocating publicly right now, we need to advocate as much as we possibly can because I don't know what's coming and I'm scared of what's coming. If, if this is what we have now, right, with all of the censorship and all of this weaponization and we can't even have these conversations because people are so afraid of them, what's coming next with the political debates being what they are right now? 
so you know i i was listening to that last part you know the these people making policies who are you know misinformed right and in in a scary thought crossed my mind of but what if it's not always just being misinformed but what if it's about being very well informed and very well intentioned to say just as we're having a conversation we need to disrupt the system so that way we have individuals who not are just going to be doing the voting, but who will be holding office that are going to be well-informed, well-educated, well-positioned to actually make these changes happen. And, and a very scary thought was, well, what if, you know, there are those other individuals who are like, we're going to be very intentional about making sure that those same people who are voting and who are holding office, you know, are not are are not positioned to do those things and so it's not a mistake it's not an accident that there's this pushback as there is this generation that's kind of saying hey it's not okay it's like well it's time that we begin dismantling that from the very basic systems so that way that next generation or future generations will have to start all over again right and and we'll we'll have you know, an X number of decades where we're okay before we have to go through that. Pro- like it was a very scary thought that maybe this isn't so much about being misinformed, but maybe it's about being very well informed, which just means that we need to drive this work that much harder. There, there, there's that much more. Um, uh, what is the word I'm looking for? That intentionality. Um, yeah, yeah, the intention behind it. Um, yeah. So, I, I, I want. Think, I think Charles like. I think to think that we are here by accident would be ignorant on our part, right? Mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. There is definitely intentionality. We didn't sit in this space for hundreds of years as a country, and this wasn't sewn into the fabric of every system that exists in our country by accident. This was very intentional. We're here because people wanted us to be here, right? We're here because this was designed to be the way it is. So yeah, absolutely. And I and I I always say like even in what in all of my students in my classes, I'm not ignorant to think that every kid is going to walk out of my classroom and be like, "Yes, I'm an anti-racist and I'm going to this is going to be my life." There are kids who are skeptical. There are kids who walk out and like they've engaged in the conversation, but it's over for them when they walk out. But there those are very few, right? And and even if they are not 100% buying into the conversation. They've sat in their discomfort all year, and that's okay too. They've listened to the perspectives that they wouldn't have heard otherwise if they weren't sitting in that space. And eventually, the majority of kids are kids who've come around. And I think that's what we need to think about. Like, we're never gonna get everybody on board. That's the reality. And when we talk about like, for example, in our, in our field, educating teachers and doing professional development for teachers, in a lot of the interviews that I've sat in and conversations that I've had with my consulting, you know, people are like, well, how do you bring everybody on board? You don't bring everybody on board. That's ignorant. We're not going to ever have everybody on board. But there's a rule of thirds. You have a third of people who are there, a third of people who are on the fence, and a third of people who will probably never come along, right? And we hope to bring those on the fence to the other side. And for those third of people who don't, who will not join the journey and, and come on to the journey, hopefully they'll get uncomfortable enough to recognize and realize that they probably should be doing something different. Right, that this isn't for them because our demographics of our of our country are changing, whether we like it or not, <laughs> and these kids are here, right? And and we need to address their needs, and that's just the reality of it. And so I think as we become the majority doing this work, or hopefully we become the majority, because right now we're not. Like I feel like oftentimes in these spaces, I'm a, I call it the lone ra- I'm a lone ranger. Like you, you're on your own, and you you might have a couple of allies in each building, but but this is hard work, and you are 
oftentimes perceived as like, you know, I, I can see it sometimes like, oh, here she goes again. Or, you know, it's this angry brown woman or like, you know, people roll their eyes. People will like make comments. Um, I, I've, especially as a Palestinian, I always say like people don't understand <laughs> the realities of how difficult it is to claim your Palestinian identity publicly in a country where there's bipartisan support for Israel and people don't understand the Palestinian narrative, right? And so I've been branded, I always say with the letter A, <laughs> not as an adulteress, but as an anti-Semitic for simply claiming my Arab identity, for my, simply claiming my Palestinian identity. I've been told by an administrator that my Palestinian identity is offensive and asked to tone it down. Mm. And yes, and, and in a school where there's not a lot of Arabs, there's about 30 Arabs, but about 25 of them are Palestinian. So how does that actually impact our kids if their identity is offensive? Right. And that's always where my mind goes. My mind always goes like, if this is how I feel, how do my kiddos feel? How does this make them feel? What is what is the impact on them? You know, and so I think people need to understand and recognize that, you know, it, it, this this it's now this work has to happen now and there will always be pushback regardless of what it is. But if the system itself is being disrupted and the for, the, the gatekeepers are for the work, I always say, if you're an administrator in a building, your job is to mow the lawn and allow people to take that to, to walk that path as easily as they can, right? My administration, my principal, my assistant principal, they're for this work. And so even when parents complain, I can direct the complaints back to the parents, to the administration, and they deal with a lot of the parent complaints. They're not, oftentimes they're at the beginning of the year, maybe a five or six parents who eventually with time come around as their kids come around. But I don't have to deal with that. My job is to focus on the students in the classroom, to, to be transparent with the parents at the beginning of the year and tell them what this curriculum is about and why we do this work. But also there has to be a, a place where schools do what's best for kids, despite the parents that are pushing back. Because right now the parents that are pushing back are parents who are also working to weaponize this work and silence it. And so we can't have those parents control that narrative either. And so the administration and these other communities need to be in a place where they can say, this is how we're doing it. And so even at Leiden, one of the first things we said is, let's really kind of understand what equity means at Leiden. Because when you say equity and I say equity, we could be talking about two completely different things. So before we can even start to really do equity work, let's create a shared vocabulary. So when we're saying something, we all mean the same thing. That's where we need to start. And then we can start to have dialogue. But when we're having that dialogue, we all intend and mean the same things. And so that's where that's where we started. We started defining what does equity in Leiden look like? And now how do I hold myself accountable for making sure that I'm being equitable according to Leiden standards? That's the conversation. And part of it is even if parents push back, even if teachers don't like it, this is it. This is what it looks like because we've defined it as our definition. So now it becomes like the the grounding foundation of every every conversation. When people are pushing back, we go back to our equity definition and our equity statement, and we say, "But here it is, right? This is what we've committed to." And so we this is how it falls into play, and then it becomes a non-issue. And whether they like it or not, this is the way we're doing it. So we need to start there, and we need to stop walking around the issue and just be explicit and and really say things the way they are because as long as we're waiting for people to buy in it's just going to continue to stall the work and it's never going to happen so i i'm, I'm sure that people listening to the, this episode right now uh you know there, there are some who've turned it off a long time ago and they're like you know this is ridiculous <laughs> um which i mean to be honest i was like why would you begin listening to the show if you didn't feel that way anyway um you know there are, there are others though and, and I know some of them who are listening right now and they're 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 sitting in their homes their their cars their cl- wherever it may be and they're just like yes 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 
But I think something you said earlier, and, I, and I'm going to use this to transition into this last part, was that you know when you play it safe, that you perpetuate these unsafe spaces, right? And, and I'm wondering how many of us are sitting listening right now and thinking, well, that that's exactly what I do, right? I, I want to create change. I know that it's important. I want to push back, but I, I'm playing it safe for a variety of reasons, right? Whether it's because it's my career, right? I, I have a family, I have bills, I have responsibilities. It's that that basic human need to to feel included and belong. So I, I'm I'm just going to go along with things because I don't want to be ousted. And, and and then what? You know, you and I we have these conversations, and, and we're willing to just say, you know what, we're we're going to speak very candidly. So I guess my question for you is for those who are listening right now who are in an absolute agreement, who say, you know, enough's enough, but I don't know how to not play it safe. Do you have any recommendations or suggestions on on stepping out of that safe space into that area of discomfort so that way they can, you know, to be true, I guess, if you will, true agents of change and and join, right? Because, right, it, there's more than you and I having this conversation. There is a collective who are like, this is enough's enough. So stepping out of that safe space, you're going to find a new home. You're going to find a new group. But I know taking that step is uncomfortable. So any suggestions, resources, tips, ideas on how to begin making that that transition? Yeah. I mean, I would say <laughs> it's funny because I sat with a group of administrators uh, for courageous conversation trainings. And um, the homework for the night was go interview somebody in your circle of friends who doesn't look like you. And the next day, a lot of our administrators came back and said, I'm embarrassed because I didn't have anybody in my social circle who didn't look like me. Right. And so start there. Start by thinking about how you're positioning yourself when you have a choice. Right. And I think that humanizing historically criminalized groups has to start with having authentic connections and relationships with those people first. I can read as many books as I want. It's not like having a cup of coffee and a conversation and sharing stories about with one mom from one background and myself about our children, about cooking, about being a wife, about being a mom, about being a sister, about being all these different hats that we wear and just really connecting with somebody on that human level intrinsically. And through that, understanding the differences of what makes us people and what makes us and the, the, the differences and the intersections of just being people, right? And, and really discovering those different people in that human way. I think we let's start there. Like that's the first step. I think disrupting or not disrupting, that humanization needs to happen. With redlining in our country, it's easy to be surrounded with people who look like you. So the diversifying your social circles needs to be intentional. And I think that's where a lot of it needs to start. If you work in a district like mine where many of the students are Latin A, immerse yourself in that community. Immerse yourself in the community of the kids that don't look like you. Go to their community spaces, attend events, you know, go to the churches, go to the mosques, go to, you know, where they gather, go to go to concerts, go to wherever it is that those families are gathering, you know, visit student homes, call them, check in with them. You know, I, I had a father who was attacked by two bulldogs after he was deported. And finally, he literally made it back to his kids after three years of being separated from them. And the, the, the student walked in, he was so happy. He's like, I'm gonna be out for the next two days because my dad is finally coming back. 
And then he was out for three days and I was like, okay, you know, he's having such a great time with his dad. Great. Let him enjoy. He hasn't seen him in three days, three years. And when he came back, he had eyes that were like, you know, bloody red. And I said, are you okay? And he said, my dad was attacked. He went for a walk and he was attacked by two bulldogs and, and was in ICU because he was hurt so badly and had to have emergency surgery. And so like, you know, just checking in and, and, and understanding like just the inequity of like the way these dogs had been attacking and they were dogs by the only white neighbor in the community who were attacking families in that community and had attacked a child in the past and nothing was done because the family was had, I guess, a connection with law enforcement in the city and nothing was happening. And here's another victim of that. And, and like the community was really upset. And this is a child who lost his father the first time and now is wondering if, if he was going to, if his father was going to live a second time, like the trauma of that, you know? So immerse yourself in the community, understand what they're dealing with, understand the realities of their lived experiences every single day, what that looks like beyond a textbook, beyond a, a television screen, start there, you know? And even in your own local community, it's a safer space to start. As a parent, as a community member, even if you don't have parents in your school district, start there. Go ask hard questions. You have the opportunity to do that. Practice there, right? Hold your districts accountable. And then when you're coming into a school space, I'm not saying go march into the principal's office or your superintendent's office and, you know, or a board, a board meeting and fight. It's about building relationships. It's about finding the allies in your building first. It's about making incremental changes. It's about starting within your locus of control. If you're a classroom teacher, start by creating safe spaces with your students. Start by seeing your kids. That's huge, right? Start there and, and find your allies and see where you can work forward. Mobilize your students, mobilize your parents, your parent communities. You don't have to do it by yourself. Right. I think that there's a lot of power in and we sometimes assume and I've heard teachers say, oh, these parents don't want to participate. Well, I know my parents came to this country as refugees and they nothing was more important to them than making sure that their kids got the best education because they understood that our education was our liberation. And that was the only way that we were ever going to reclaim our narrative and make it our own. Right. That was what my parents knew for a fact. So nothing mattered to them where my dad worked and moved state lines to put us in the best schools, the best that he knew. But he didn't know how to advocate. He didn't understand the American school system. He didn't attend it. He wasn't a student there. He didn't speak the language. It wasn't something he was familiar with. He didn't know how to participate even when he wanted to. And so we, we have to stop assuming that parents have these skills. We have to stop assuming that self-advocacy is something inherent. In the Arab community, we don't come from democratic backgrounds. Self-advocacy is something we have to learn. It's not something that comes comfortably for Arabs. And so very few Arabs will self-advocate. One of my biggest challenges in advocating, I started an Arab American Educators Network, is mobilizing our community to push back against 9-11 narratives and the fact that the kite runner is being taught as a culturally responsive text in most schools with high Arab populations and Khalid Husseini isn't even Arab. Nobody knows that. <laughs> and, what he, and if we're saying we're being responsive towards Muslim kids, that's like teaching cult Christianity. Nobody follows that form of Islam. Right. That is extremist Islam. That is not the Islam that the kids in America are following for the most part. So why are the, is this text in classrooms across our country in schools where there's high concentrations of Arabs and high concentrations of Muslims? Th those are the kinds of questions we need to be asking. Right. And so there's always somewhere for you to start. And every little change, if everybody went out today and made a small change, those small changes will equal to a big change eventually.
right? Because then the kids will start asking the hard questions. The parents will start asking the hard questions. They will hold people accountable. You will hold people accountable. The more of us are holding the gatekeepers accountable, the more change we'll see over time. So sometimes it's the smallest thing. Sometimes, you know, it's one student in your classroom that realizes that they found their voice in your space and the power that that student carries in making change and holding people accountable in that building is beyond any power that I, I've seen that happen. And those kids are more powerful than any voice that I've had. Our student equity board is on fire. Our student equity board is asking all the hard questions. I don't have to ask. I just gave students the equity conversation. Now they're taking that and they're making it something, right? So there's always somewhere for you to start. Find your PLN, find your support system, find people who you can go back to and ask questions. I think one of the bigger concerns that I hear from people is that I'm afraid I'm going to perpetuate harm in it, like with good intention. And yeah, you're probably going to make mistakes. I look back at myself five years ago and I think about things that I've done and I'm like, how did I even do that? So inequitable. You're going to make mistakes. But the big thing is that you're going to grow. You're going to surround yourself, do your research, do your reading, ask the people that not your students and not your BIPOC people. Do the work first and then lean in on communities and professionals who are doing this work in order for you to, to, to better your own knowledge. But start with yourself and start with your community and start with being equitable in your life and how you position yourself so that you then inherently and naturally will show up as a more equitable person in your professional space. Man, I, I cannot thank you enough. I mean, I, I I wasn't sure exactly how you were going to respond, and I, I'm not disappointed. <laughs> I, I I love the. I think as as I'm listening to the conversation, uh, as I'm listening to you to you speak, any, I I wouldn't even say doubt. Like any maybe people you know would have had of saying I'm, I'm not sure how she. You know, is, is this authentic? Is that like the, the passion is there and you, you could hear it. And so I just want to say thank you, right, for, for having this very real, this very authentic conversation and, and not holding back. Right. I mean, we even paused for a moment because because, you know, the your your alarm was going off to say, hey, like, hey, it's time for prayer. And I really thought like, hey, we, we need to pause for a moment because I don't want to disrupt that. And you're like, I, I'm having this conversation. And so I just. I, I want to say thank you, right? Because it, it has been phenomenal. It has been raw. It has been authentic. And and I can't say thank you enough. I'm glad that I stumbled across the work that you're doing. And, and I'm sure that the listeners, they're they if they if they're not already following you, right? If they didn't jump into your Twitter page and looked up room 208 as we were having this conversation. What what are some of the best ways where they can connect and and follow the journey and, and see some of the things that you're doing? Well, I think Twitter's where I'm most active on social media and Instagram possibly. I know it's also both handled are at SJ Educate. And then my email, if anybody wants to reach out, I'm always ready to share the resources and the work because honestly, and I always say like this is about the work more than anything else. So this is not about like you know, your five minutes of fame. It's not about elevating your voice. It's not about like, this is about how can we really move this work forward? Because my kids have had, I could tell you story upon story of my children and, and the experiences that they've had with ignorance from students and from teachers in educational spaces from K through 12. And I have a 25 year old daughter 
and my youngest daughter is 16. And I'll tell you that my 16-year-old has seen much more aggression than my 25-year-old. And and my 25-year-old went to school in New York during 9-11. So like, you know, she grew up around that time post 9-11. And so like, she should have seen more of that antagonism than her sister. But times, it's getting worse for our children. And so we really just need to think about like, you know, if, if there's things, resources that you want, if anything that I've said, if something you see on Twitter resonates with you, if there's, if you want a, a PLN, I can connect you. I'm a part of three or four different national and international PLNs of people doing this work that meet virtually. Um, if you're looking to do something specific, if you want a guest speaker, right? Like even in my classroom, and that's, I'm, I'm going to throw this in really quick. I don't, we, people say we're a diverse community, but we're primarily Latin. We're a minoritized majority, right? And so if you have a lot of kids that look the same, that's not a diverse community, even if they're brown. Um, so one of the things, but we don't, we have a demographic divide in our district as well. Many of our teachers are white. And so one of the things that I've done is I've done lightning talks every single Wednesday where I've in, invited speakers from all over the country to come into our space and talk about different topics that we're discussing in our classroom space. And a lot of the kids are so happy to see somebody who looks like them, who is a professional, who is an expert talking. So open up your spaces, invite them in. If there's things that you see, if you need a guest speaker on a topic, especially equity related, somebody from a specific demographic background, follow Our Voice Alliance. Those are all keynote speakers from all different BIPOC and marginalized group experiences. That's a team that I'm a part of. I'm a board member for Our Voice Alliance. Let me know. I can connect you to the right person if you're looking for something specific, whatever it takes to move this work forward. And if I can help, if anything I've said resonated, please reach out to me. Um, educationunfiltered at gmail.com is my email. sjeducate at sjeducate on Instagram and Twitter. Um, I'm happy to help. I also like share my student work, elevate those voices. People need to hear kids saying how they experience school so that we can see the urgency of this work and stop talking around these issues. So yeah, I think that's my two cents. And there's so much more to say. I think we can talk on and on and on because there's so much to unpack and so much to say. Um, so there, and there's so much out there. There's so many amazing people doing this work right now. The Our Voice Alliance team, every single one of those people is a powerhouse across our country doing this work and speaking and in different fields in STEM and math and just different, different content areas and leadership and technology. Like these are people who are leading this work countrywide. And so follow them follow their work. I think Twitter for me has been such a great educational space in a lot of ways, because I've had the opportunity of, I, I always call it edutwitter, like it's a place for me to really educate myself, collect resources, but also give my students a platform to share their voice with people who care. So I think those are some tips and some places that we can start the conversation and, and reach out to me if there's anything that I can do to support your journey. And I, I know earlier, I, I jokingly mentioned like, you know, maybe we could branch off right into three, three, four different parts. Um, but I, I really do. I, I think we're going to have to uh, reconnect, continue these conversations and not just in this space. Uh, but I hope that we can find some ways to collaborate and connect. I, I appreciate the work that you're doing. I don't I don't, I don't want to just say thank you for being on the show, which I, I absolutely cannot say thank you enough for coming into this space and, and just sharing. But just thank you for 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 being that voice, for being that person that education desperately needs now as, as, as a disruptor. So I cannot say thank you enough. So just, you know, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, it has been phenomenal. And, and I look forward to, uh, to grabbing that cup of coffee and picking your brain a little bit more. We have to, and thank you. Thank you, Charles, for creating this space too. And for elevating all of these voices, like it's such an important thing too, that people have a place that they can, 
you know, go to to find these resources and have these conversations. So I, we appreciate you as well and all the work that you're doing. So thank you for having me. Honored. And um, I'm sure for those of you listening, we'll catch you next time. I want to thank you for listening to the Counter Narrative Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please be sure to like, subscribe, and of course, share it with friends and family. I'd also love to hear your thoughts about the show, so please leave a comment or two as well. Now, I'm not sure what platform you're using, but the show can be found on Anchor, Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, Spotify, and plenty of other platforms. If the show isn't on your preferred site, let me know, and I'll be sure to get it up and running. This podcast is also featured on schoolrubric.com, where you can find educational articles, videos, and interviews with educators from around the globe. Be sure to connect with me and other listeners by following the show on Twitter at the CN Podcast and joining the show's Facebook group. Take care.